ended on having 10 seconds longer to bring my lectern up here. Merry Christmas to all of you. Welcome. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. As you turn there, uh, if you're not familiar with Scripture, I would just uh, introduce this book of the Bible by noting that there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they are eyewitness testimony to the birth, the life, the death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so this is a historically reliable document that bears witness to the coming of Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection. Uh, Matthew 2, 1 through 15, let's hear God's word together. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Notice the redundancy. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and, was, and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, you have enriched our lives in so many ways. You've provided food for us. You've given us life. Uh, you've given us family and friends. Uh, we thank you for these many gifts and more. Uh, but we thank you, Father, this evening for the supreme gift of a Savior, even your Son, Jesus, who came down from heaven into this world of suffering and pain and futility and endured hardship every step of the way that we might be reconciled to you. This e evening, we acknowledge that you have come to us you have come low that you might bring us high, and we rejoice in this. We pray that the message of salvation, the message of a coming king would resonate in our hearts, would stir our affections, causing us to rejoice more deeply in Christ. If there's anyone here who, is not, who doesn't know the Savior, who doesn't know the joy of the forgiveness of sins in a relationship with you, we pray that you would be pleased tonight to use your word to draw 
your people to yourself, Father. Let your blessing be on the proclamation of the word. Glorify your name. Build us up, we ask. Amen. I suspect that uh, some of you have heard some version of the saying, he who has no enemies has no honor, not least because I've used it on certain occasions. Uh, He who has no enemies has no honor. The idea is that if you're a principled person and you're not a people pleaser and you always do what's right, or at least you try to do what's right, you're going to alienate people sometimes. If you're a principled person, you will sometimes alienate people and you will have enemies. And assuming the enemies are the right enemies, that can be a good thing, right? Have enemies, the right kinds of enemies. Well, Jesus was a man of principle, a man of honor from the very beginning. And it's no wonder that he faced opposition from evil men from the very beginning. This is the very heart of this passage tonight. Uh, Our Lord Jesus Christ endured hostility, opposition every step of the way, starting even uh, shortly after his birth. So this evening, as we look at this passage, yes, we will consider the the bright light in the foreground, the the light of the star, the joy of the wise men. But that light shines brightly against a very sinister and sober, dark background. And we'll consider the conflict of it as the very heart of this passage. Uh, But before we look at two, we we need to recall what we learned last week from Matthew chapter 1. There we have Jesus' royal genealogy. Matthew tells us that he is a descendant of King David. And in the coming of Jesus, the long-awaited king, Israel's king, has come. The king has come to bring the blessings of God. But in fact, more than just a physical descendant of David has arrived on the scene. He is that, but he is more. He is Emmanuel, we are told, God with us. In the birth of Christ, we have the birth of a king from the line of David. But we also have the eternal Son of God without ceasing to be God, becomes a human being and enters into our world of weariness and sorrow and pain. And the relentless antagonism that he will face throughout his life begins shortly after his birth. Six months after, two years after, something like that. That's probably the, what we're looking at here. Uh, this didn't, chapter 2 in Matthew doesn't happen immediately when Jesus is born. It's something like, as I say, six months to two years. So everything in chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, is, is building up towards the coming of the Messiah, Israel's king. And then there's an unexpected note when we get to chapter 2, when we read that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king. And note the emphasis on Herod's being king. There's Herod the king in verse 1. There is, in verse 3, Herod the king again, and verse 9, after listening to the king. Matthew is subtly underscoring the fact that Herod is also, in a sense, a king. Yet Jesus is the long-awaited king of Israel. Already you can see that there's there's a tension beginning to grow. There's one king too many in this passage. And so... In the reign of Herod the king, you have wise men from the east. This would have been some combination of scholars and those who are students of the sky as well, looking at stars and trying to discern things by looking at the stars. Uh, We don't know how far east they came from, but presumably a ways. And the reason they've come is because a, a star has appeared in the heavens that has signaled to them that a birth of a great king, a great Hebrew king, Jewish king, 
has taken place. And of course, if a Jewish king has been born, where do you go? Jerusalem. So they come to the royal city, and they say, we are here to pay homage to the king of the Jews. Notice that language. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? There is mention of a second king. What do you think Herod would have felt when you have these probably very socially prominent, distinguished individuals showing up into your city, the city of Jerusalem, and saying, we're here to pay honor to the king. Not you, but the king of the Jews. Now, we know from Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, that Herod was a vicious, politically astute, capable administrator and brutal individual. Uh, we know especially that as he got older, he became more and more paranoid about holding control over his throne. Uh, the Emperor Augustus said it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. And killed his wife and at least two of his sons to maintain his hold on the throne. So the, the violence that we see in this passage is certainly true to form. This is who Herod is. They've come, these outsiders, these men from the east, looking for the king of the Jews. Herod's response, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, naturally. This is a threat to his authority as king, and we're told that the rest of Jerusalem is troubled with him. Why? Uh, there was not a lot of love lost between Herod and the people of Jerusalem. They weren't fond of Herod. Why were they troubled? Uh, because if Herod is troubled and disturbed by what's happening and paranoid, uh, life can become very difficult very quickly for others. I assume that's why they're, they're, they're troubled by the arrival of these men. But their question is, where is the king of the Jews? He was born so we can go worship him. So Herod collects the biblical scholars and scribes who, who point him to the prophet Micah, and they say, uh, it's Bethlehem, the city of David. That's where the Messiah, the Jewish king, is coming from. That's where he's going to be born. So Herod takes these wise men from the east aside, and he says, hey, I share your commitment to paying homage to, these, to, to this newborn king. Here's what we'll do. You go first, find him in Bethlehem, and you, you honor him, you give him your gifts, and then send word to me, because I also would like to honor this king. Now, of course, he's lying. His desire is to kill the king that God has sent into the world. And we, know, we see that later, of course. But the men of the east, the wise men, they, they arrive. The star, apparently, at this point, uh, helps them navigate to Bethlehem. And perhaps, it, the language isn't clear if it was just simply to, the star took them to Bethlehem or even specifically to the home, but it may well be that the star's light in some miraculous way shone on the house where Mary was and Joseph was and Jesus was. And their response is to prostrate themselves and give uh, generous gifts and to pay homage to the king. This is why they've come. There's a sense of expectation up to this point in the narrative. This king that these men have been waiting for is on the scene. The king that humanity has been waiting for has come on the scene. And then God, in a dream, supernaturally says, hey, don't go back to Herod. Go home by a different path. Now, when Herod discovers that he has been deceived, he's furious. And he gives a barbaric command. He says, all the male boys, two and under, in Bethlehem, are to be put to the sword and slaughtered. 
make sure that none get away, including this kingly figure. Bethlehem would have had right around a thousand people in it, so there probably would have been something like 12 to 20 uh, boys about Jesus' age from birth to two years of age, and all of those boys were put to death. It's a sobering fact that Jesus didn't have an exact contemporary from his home city. There were no other little boys that precisely were Jesus' age because they were slaughtered by Herod. This, as I say, this is true to form in Herod's case. We know from extra-biblical sources that this is precisely the sort of man he was. And yet the king, the Messiah, is saved because God intervenes again and gives a dream to Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus Christ, and he says, Herod's going to try to kill the boy. Go. And so Joseph, Mary, and Jesus go to Egypt uh, to avoid the wrath of this paranoid and insecure king, King King Herod. Now, there is more happening in Matthew chapter 2 than at first meets the eye. When we take this chapter of Matthew and we put it against the backdrop of the whole story of Scripture, uh, what we see is that this is a new chapter in an ancient conflict. This is a new chapter in an ancient conflict that goes all the way back to the very beginning. First book of the Bible, Genesis, tells us that our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, violated His command, and in so doing, opened the doors to all kinds of misery for themselves and their descendants. But we're also told that they rebelled against the Lord because they were seduced, they were tempted by the serpent, by Satan. And so after their disobedience, God pronounces judgment on the serpent. He says that his offspring, the seed of the serpent, uh, will live in continuous conflict with the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. So there is going to be from this point forward, a general antagonism between those who belong to God and those who belong to the serpent. There is a general conflict. But there's also a specific conflict between the one seed of the woman or offspring of the woman who will destroy Satan himself. That's a reference, of course, to Jesus. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. One is coming from the woman who is going to crush and grind down the head of the serpent and undo the misery that he has brought to pass. But from this point forward, in the, as, as the biblical story unfolds, as the story of salvation unfolds, we will see this conflict between those who belong to God and those who are of Satan. And we don't have to wait long either. We get to Genesis chapter 4, and we see Cain murder his brother Abel because Abel's worship was pleasing to God and Cain's was rejected. And there's more going on, John tells us, than meets the eye there as well. 1 John 3.12, we're told, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, seed of the serpent, if you like, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. This is the first attack upon the seed of the woman. And then we keep reading in Scripture and we get to the Exodus account where Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, seeks to slaughter all of the male babies of the Hebrews. Uh, but of course, the Lord intervenes and protects his people. 
Ultimately, it's the first child of Pharaoh who dies. But again, we see that same assault by the seed of the serpent on the seed of the woman. And that's the backdrop for Matthew 2. This is a new and intensified assault by the evil one on King Jesus. Revelation 12, verses 4 through 5 describes it this way. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, the one who was to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. This is symbolic language. Uh, but, the, but the imagery here is, is very vivid. It's a red dragon snarling to eat up this child that is born. And that is a symbolic and pictorial representation of the opposition to the coming of Jesus. So from his first entry into this world, there is this radical, irreconcilable conflict between King Jesus, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent who seeks to devour and destroy him. And this conflict doesn't end at birth. We see it at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the first things that happens is he is tempted by the devil to turn back from the hard path that God has for him. What does Jesus do? He resists that temptation, unlike Adam. He remains faithful to God. Again, at a pivotal moment in the Gospels, uh, the Apostle Peter, who was dear to the Lord and close to Jesus, he tries to persuade Jesus that surely you don't have to go through the path of suffering and pain and even death. Surely there's an easier path. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. He sees in the words of Peter a temptation to turn from the hard path of obedience to the Father, to some other disobedient but easy path. And finally, in John's Gospel, we are told that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Satan entered into him, that is, into Judas, John 13, 27. There's the climax of satanic opposition to Jesus. He enters into Judas, and Judas betrays Jesus into the hands of evil men. So in the very beginning of his life, we see a conflict between the Son of God and satanic opposition against him. Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, put it this way. If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem, by comparison, a mere game. From the very beginning, there is determined, persistent, and violent opposition to Jesus Christ. But as vigorous and violent and persistent as the opposition is, it's finally futile. We see that God has willed for his son to triumph. And we see God's intervention here through the dreams given to the men from the east and also to Joseph. God protects his son. He protects him from the snarling dragon. And ultimately, King Jesus triumphs gloriously, crushes the head of the serpent at the cross, defeats him, and brings about God's ancient promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and undo the works of the devil. At Christmas, we celebrate the victory of the king over our ancient foe. Now, you might say, well, that's great. 
That's a big panoramic view of what God has done in history. What does that mean for me? What's the relevance of that for me? Excellent question. Uh, what we need to understand is that apart from Jesus Christ, we are in bondage to sin and Satan and the powers of darkness. We may not feel that way, but according to Scripture, apart from Jesus, we are alienated from God, separated from Him, and in bondage to the powers of darkness, to sin. And we are incapable, we are incapable of living in the love and wisdom and virtue that God has created us to live in. We are morally ruined and we can't change ourselves. The coming of Jesus into, into the world means liberty for captives like us. Now, you may say, well, I don't feel like a slave. First thing I would respond is whether you feel that way or not. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, Paul says that's precisely the truth about us. This is what Scripture says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the prince of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is what God says about our condition. But to add another uh, point here, part, part of the reason you can feel free is that you love your chains. It's possible to love a life without God, a life where you are at the center, do what you want, God's on the periphery. It's possible to love that kind of life. And so it doesn't feel like slavery because you like the darkness. John 3 says, they love the darkness rather than the light. But even you can catch some glimpse of the power of evil when you try to do some good. When you, try, when you, when you decide, I'm going to try to engage in some kind of moral reform, then you feel something of the strength of your chains, don't you? It's the time of year where everybody makes resolutions to do better, right? I'm going to eat better this year, less sugar, exercise a little more. I'm going to watch less TV and read more. I'm not going to be on my phone as much and distracted at work. I'm going to focus, right? We, we, we make resolutions of this kind. I'm going to do better. I'm going to have more self-control. And it's almost a cliche, isn't it, that we don't keep those resolutions? That we joke about how the resolutions are quickly made and quickly broken. Even in relatively trivial matters, be slightly more self-controlled. I mean, I'm limit myself to one slice of cake, not two. Even in relatively trivial matters, we find it difficult, don't we, to do what we've purposed to do. You resolved, I'm not going to be irritated with my family, my kids, my spouse, my coworkers. I'm going to do better and do better for a while. And what happens? You fail. And then I'm going to do better and you fail. What we see when we, when we strive to do what's right, we find evil clinging to us. We feel the strength of our chains. And this is in relatively trivial matters. How much more when it comes to sacrificial love and humility and generosity and contentment? When you try to really pursue those things, what you find is that you are in deeper bondage than perhaps you thought. Maybe you can identify with the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 18 through 21. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That's our condition apart from Jesus. Incapable of living as God has created us to be. And the good news of Christmas, the good news of the coming King, is that we are freed through Christ 
from that bondage so that we can live in accordance with our Creator's will. And the way Jesus rescues us from bondage to Satan and sin is by dealing with the guilt of our sin at the cross. The supreme victory of the Son of God over Satan is at the cross, and he destroys Satan's power and the power of darkness over the people of God by taking away the guilt of our sin. One of the worst things you can hear as an employee or a, or a student is that uh, is words from your teacher or your superior at work that we're, we're going to put that in your file. We're going to put that in your file. Your, your incompetence won't be overlooked, mercifully. They won't look the other way. They're going to write it down and keep a record of it, and it's going in your file. You cheated on the test. It's on your permanent record. The sad truth is that that file before God gets thicker and thicker with each passing year, doesn't it? The accumulated guilt of a lifetime makes that file get thicker and thicker. If you guys uh, have heard John Lennon's song, So This Is Christmas, it's, it's on the radio you know, frequently this time of year. Not a huge fan uh, of that song. Uh, I find the lyrics a little bit bleak. I don't know if you agree with me. Here, here, here are the, here's the stands I have in mind. So this is Christmas, and what have you done? Ouch. Another year over, and a new one just begun? Yeah, another year has gone by. I'm a year older. What have I done? Not much. I don't know. Right? <laughs> There's like a pang of guilt when you consider minutely uh, this last year of your life. How did it go? And when you scrutinize the last year, you, you notice the discrepancy between what ought to have been and what actually was. And that discrepancy is only magnified when you look beyond the last year and you look at your whole life. What causes us to cringe? The recognition that we have not been as God would have us to be. That we have not lived as the Creator has made us. That we have sinned against Him. That we have failed to put Him first. To live in accordance to His commands. That file against us is thick. But here's the good news this evening. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, and you don't know Jesus, and he's not your Savior, uh, I'm so glad you're here. There's no better place for you to be this evening than with us tonight. Here's the good news. I have great news for you tonight, and it's more than just there's good food and time with your family this evening. That's, that's not bad, but it gets better. The scriptures say that at the cross, Jesus takes that fat file with our accumulated guilt, and he shreds it all. He takes away our sins completely by suffering the anguish of God's judgment in our place. Jesus stands condemned in our place so we can be washed of all those things this last year we didn't do, of all the ways in which in our lives we failed to honor God. There is cleansing in Jesus Christ. You can be washed and made pure in the sight of God tonight by placing your faith in Jesus. That good news is available to all of us. God asks nothing of us this evening but to trust the Savior. So Jesus defeats Satan by taking away our guilt at the cross. And by taking away our guilt, he also breaks the power of sin and Satan over us. It's not just that we become forgiven, it's that the, the dominion of darkness over us is taken away through the taking away of our guilt. Paul connects these dots for us in Colossians chapter 2 verses 12 through 15. You were dead in your trespasses. That's the bondage we've just been talking about. You were dead in your trespasses. 
God made you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's that file, the record of debt, nailed it to the cross and thereby, I'm adding the word thereby, he disarmed the ruler and authorities, powers of darkness, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. By taking away our guilt, Jesus also destroys the dominion of sin and Satan that we might do what? That we might be free. That we might live as the creator intended us to live. With generous love and wisdom and humility and compassion. Through Jesus Christ, we are slowly becoming, if I can put it this way, human again. Jesus came not that we would be slightly nicer men and women, but that we would be new men and women who walk with God at the center and walk in the sunlight of his acceptance and love and blessing. Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of Satan that we might be free, walk in liberty as the sons and daughters of God. That's true freedom. Political freedom is good, but this kind of spiritual freedom is best. So how should we respond to this news then? Well, if you look carefully at this passage, you'll notice that there are two different responses. There's Herod's response. He's threatened by the coming of Jesus. He doesn't want to lose his throne. He wants to keep power. And so he opposes Jesus. Many people respond to Jesus this way. They don't want him to be king because they like being king. They worry that if they come and submit to Jesus like these wise men, then he's going to require them to give up something that they hold dear. Life is going to contract and it won't be as sweet if I surrender to Jesus. That's one response. The second response, the one that God commends to you this evening, is the response of the wise men. Notice that sense of anticipation. There's a star. A king is born. They come to the city. Where is he? Oh, the scripture says in Bethlehem. The star leads them. And at last, they're in the presence of the world's true king. And they experience, again, notice the, the repetition. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's what happens when you bring your life under King Jesus. You rejoice exceedingly with great joy because life is good under his kingly authority. They bow down. They surrender uh, all that they have to him. They submit to him as their king. They pay homage and they give generous gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What we learn from the wise men is that the reign of Jesus is good and life-giving. To have Jesus as your king means that he protects you, either by preventing harm or sustaining you in the midst of uh, harm. He provides for you through his Holy Spirit, empowering you to live a life for the glory of God. And he is present in your life to have fellowship with you. There's nothing sweeter in this world than to walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. The essence of life is not having a lot of money or being massively successful by worldly standards. The essence of life is to know Jesus Christ. All those who freely submit to Jesus experience all of those blessings. The hands of the king, we might say, are healing hands. Isn't that what we see again and again in the Gospels? Jesus puts his hands on broken bodies, and what happens to those broken bodies? They're healed. The paralyzed walk again. When Jesus puts his royal hands on your life, he heals it, and you flourish and live as God intends you to live. 
What I want you to see from their response is that whatever pleasure, whatever life you think you have, it's nothing compared to the life that Jesus has to give. Life under his lordship is far better than anything you've experienced if you're on the outside of his rule. Those of you with children uh, will understand me when I say that it's difficult to get them to try new things to eat. You know what I'm talking about? You try to expand their culinary sophistication by getting them to try different dishes. Uh, Stephanie, my wife, is a wonderful cook, and she's always trying new things. And there's, you know, I'm always appreciating the interplay of flavors. But inevitably, one of the younger ones, you know, makes a face and says, no, I don't want that. I want chicken nuggets and ketchup. Because as far as he's concerned, um, that's... That's, that's the top. You can't do better than chicken nuggets and ketchup. <laughs> now, I use that, admittedly, uh, silly illustration to make a serious point. Uh, we're often like that. We hold on to our idols and God substitutes, whether it's a, a romantic relationship, our career, whatever. We hold on to it, and we think, we can't do any better than this. This is as good as life gets. And what this text is saying to you is you don't have a clue. You are right to believe that Jesus claims everything. If you're going to come to Jesus at all, you should know that he claims not just like part of your life. He claims all of it. Nothing is off limits. King Jesus makes absolute claims on us. And it may be the case that you've got to give this or that up. But the life that he has is far better than anything you've ever known. And therefore, you should come confidently. You should come as the wise men did and yield all to Jesus. Submit to him as your king, holding nothing back, and trust in him as your savior, that you too might learn to walk in freedom again, uh, being what God has made you to be. I don't know how many Christmases I've left, and I don't know how many Christmases you have left, but the fact, of, the fact is this life is going by quickly, isn't it? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your savior, today is the, the day to make a decision. Today is the day for you to respond to the good news of what the Son of God has done. God asks nothing of us except to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And so you can leave this place rejoicing that you have peace with God if you place your faith in Him tonight. If you'd like to talk about these things further, I'm available after the service, as are the other pastors, uh, Chuck and Randy. Uh, Randy was here earlier or just many of the members of CBC would be happy to talk to you about Jesus as well. So there's a good place to be if you want to know more about Jesus, basically. Turn around to anyone around you, and they'd probably be thrilled to share more. But I, we'd love to talk to you. Um, these things are given to us by God, not simply so that we'd be stimulated, so we can go, oh, that's interesting. In the Word of God, God himself speaks to you today, and he calls you to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust in him and be free. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are incomparable. I pray that our love for you would deepen, our amazement at your grace would grow, that we would increasingly reflect you and live in the freedom of the children of God. Amen.